Edward Wimper was a mountaineer who wrote a book called Scram Amongst the Alps. He wrote, climb if you will, but remember that courage and strength are nothing without prudence. A moment's negligence may destroy the happiness of life. Do nothing in haste. Look well to each step. From the beginning, think what may be the end. Mike McGillivray often says that he counsels people when making decisions to consider whether the, deci the decision will matter in 10 years. At the beginning, think what may be the end. We are a culture that lives in the moment. You must have had a great prayer this morning because that thought sinks well with what we're going to be talking about here, not just at this point. We are a culture that lives in the moment. We seldom exercise the wisdom of considering whether this event or this moment will matter in 10 years. For the past few weeks, Jason's been taking us through a study of Luke. And he's been highlighting how Luke is a collection of stories that function smaller scenes within the larger story. And that story is the story of God's grace and love demonstrated to us in the person of Jesus. Rudy, you prayed today about changing lives. That's a small little story that fits in with what I'm talking about. Steve, you prayed... Remember now, but there was something that you, what your prayer was, just fits perfectly in. And I was just going, God, this is wonderful to see how all these different things, I've not communicated with any of these folks, but all these different things are fitting in like jigsaw puzzles into what I prepared for this. Ray, what did you tell your kids about this morning? And, and you and I have not talked. Now, if this was Las Vegas, I'd be saying, that's magic. But you know what? <laughs> it's a different kind of leads that. Luke's a collection of short stories, different stories. It begins in chapter 1 with the angels and parents proclaiming. proclaiming. Chapter 2 is the and the child proclaimed. And then chapter 3, John the Baptist, the path to God. In Luke 3.8, he says, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And true repentance manifests itself in a changed thinking, Rudy. A changed thinking and behavior. So how do we proclaim the way of the Lord? This is what Jason was saying last week. We repent. First, we prepare the way in our hearts. And then we produce that changed behavior. We produce fruit in keeping with that repentance. Today I'm going to step away from the Luke narrative because I want to pose a different question. I want to pose the question about what is the way of the Lord. Not prepare it, but what is that way? What is the mission of Jesus and therefore the mission of the church? Mission, by definition, is an important assignment given to a person or group of people. It is also a strongly felt aim, ambition, or calling. It is a declaration of purpose and objective, and it comes from the Latin word, and I hope I pronounced this right, miseo, which means to send. To discover the mission of the church, we need to understand the mission of Jesus. The first clue that we have is Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. He quotes this, he reads from this early on in his ministry. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me, has sent me out to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release for the from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
let's go back one. Okay. There we go. Another verse that we would look at that I don't have on the screen. John 1, 29, it's when Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist and John declares him, he announces him by saying, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jason's going to be touching on those two passages later on in the weeks ahead. But for now, I've chosen the passage today because I believe that it exemplifies the mission of Jesus and the church in a very practical way. It's one thing to look at it and say Jesus' mission is to proclaim freedom to the, those in captivity. But how does he actually do that? We need to see how he actually does that. And that's what this uh, story today that we're going to be looking at does. But before we go there, we have to talk about what is truth. Perspective, Jim. Before we dive into the story, I want to talk about this. Nietzsche says, there are no facts, only interpretation. What I love about that is he declares a fact that says there are no facts. It's kind of like the person who says, the absolute truth is there is no absolute truth. We see this picture, you may have seen it before, where people look at it and say there's perspectives, six or nine, who is right? They say just because you're right doesn't mean I'm wrong. You have to see things from my side. And there's a lot of people that look at that and go, that makes perfect sense. But what I like to point out is that they're both wrong. It's neither six nor nine. It is the lowercase g. <laughs> Actually, that doesn't help either. Because all that does is reinforce the fact that my truth, my understanding, my interpretation is what is true. And when I declare that, this is my truth, and my truth is absolute, and you can't challenge my truth what I am doing is driving a wedge between you. It doesn't matter whether you think it's six. I think it's lowercase g. The degree, there is a degree to truth that perspective is a factor in understanding things, but it's not everything. What needs to happen is we need to step back from this scene. We need to step back from the moment, the instance, and look at things in relationship to the context around it. This is called orientating. When you're lost in the woods, the best thing to do is to climb up as high as you can to get points of references because it doesn't do you any good looking down at where you are. You need to step up and see where you are in relationship to everything else. Someone painted a six or nine. What needs to happen is they need to step back and see what this is in relationship to the world around it. As I said, when truth becomes whatever I make it, then it divides and isolates people. Objective truth provides an outside perspective we need back to gain an understanding of the bigger picture. There's one problem with having small stories and looking at those stories alone is that we focus only on that story. By stepping back and seeing that story in relationship to the larger story, we get to see the bigger picture. If we look at the story that we're going to look at today and see it only in isolation, we have justification for what is called sloppy grace. Step back and see that story in relationship to the bigger story, which is the story of God's love and 
death and resurrection so that we can redeem people out of their sin. When we take a look at the story, I want you to think about what character you identify with. How has your life at times been reflected in this story? Have you been accused of wrongdoing? What did that feel like? Have you ever been caught red-handed in sin? What did that feel like? Have you ever sat on the sideline while someone else was dragged through the court of public accusation? What would you do differently? What lesson did you learn from that aspect of your story? The background to this is that this, is, this story is only recorded in John's Gospel. We only have it in one place. We don't have it in all four of the Gospels. Only recorded there. So when we look at this story, we need to look at truth we're going to exchange relationship to how does it fit in the larger context of the truth of Scripture. We can't take a look at this story in John's Gospel and say, how does it correspond with the story in Luke or Matthew? Because they're not there. We have one voice, one small perspective. We step back and we say, whatever we're going to extract from that, whatever lessons we're going to learn from that perspective, has to be consistent with what we can learn from the rest of Scripture. This, place takes, this story takes place relatively early in the Gospel of John in chapter 8, but it actually takes place in the third year of John's, Jesus' ministry, towards the end of his time. The setting is a culture and time where there is confusion and there's the division. There are people who have a form of godliness. They are religious people, very strongly religious people, founded upon a religion. And yet that religion has been so long since they've heard from people, from prophets in their religion, that they actually are kind of looking at it and going, yeah, it has a place in our life, but does it really have an important place in our life? But it's also a culture that's divided. There are those who are religious, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their students and their disciples, and they are strictly religious. And then there are those who are not so religious. And the religious people look down upon the not-so-religious people. And the not-so-religious people look at fear of religious people. Religion divided that culture and that time instead of drawing it together. The community was divided. There was a general sense that everything would be better if only someone would rescue them. And into that setting, Jesus stepped with his mission to be the light, to call people to a higher standard, his teaching, he started to feed uh, the, the hungry and heal the sick. That is being the light in their presence. He called them out of their religious traditions to a higher standing. His Sermon on the Mount, Jason preached about it last year, and one of the key phrases that he kept repeating about that Jesus says, you've heard it say, but I say, and there's that comparison. If I put that comparison in context to our story today, Jesus actually said this in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it say, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who at a woman commits adultery in her heart. Jesus was saying, the Pharisees tell you the law. I am telling you a bigger law, a newer law, a higher standard. It's not just enough not to have sex with somebody who's not your wife or husband. But rather, it's more important to look at your heart, what your thinking is. Because out of your heart, out of your thinking, comes your behavior. 
His, Jesus, his teaching was challenging for many, including his family who rejected his teaching. And in part because of his miracles and teaching, uh, sorry, the, the Pharisees, it irritated the religious leaders because the Pharisees were looking at this and seeing his miracles and his teaching and saying, we're losing influence. But there was another aspect to the Pharisees. They were strongly religious people. They were fervently and earnest in their desire to uphold the scripture. And Jesus was challenging their understanding of that scripture. And that put them at conflict. There's five characters in this story. The first one is Jesus. And we're going to look at these different characters and I want you to kind of picture and, and think of when you can actually, where do you actually fit in the story? Which character do you identify with? And Jesus, in the chapter leading up to the story, he knew that the religious people were trying to kill him. And yet he did not go into hiding. Instead, he continued to make himself publicly available. John the Baptist called people out to the wilderness, out from their homes, out from their normal life. What Jason was talking about last week. John called them out to the wilderness to repent. And Jesus goes to the people. It's interesting that this story takes place in the temple courts because one of the things that Jason also talked about last week was how all these different stories that we've been covering of the seven stories that he's covered so far in Luke 4, I believe, maybe it's three, four of them take place in the temple courts. The next group of characters are the Pharisees and they're tripping over their desire to uphold scripture. They're earnestly seeking to hold, uphold it. Now I understand that the text in this says that they were seeking to entrap Jesus. And I'm not trying to rewrite scripture. Pharisees had poor motive in this particular story. But I want you to get a bit of the backstory to their action. And part of the reason why I think the Pharisees get a bad reputation and I want to come to their defense is because I can identify with the Pharisees. I'm passionate about understanding Scripture and upholding the tenets and truth of Scripture. I yearn, yearn that our culture would embrace Scripture even as it is becoming more increasingly opposed to it. I love the Word of God. I love how it applies to our lives. And it irks me when I see people misinterpret it and misunderstand it. I'm a Pharisee. The Pharisees were shaken by this uneducated, rebellious teacher who began to lead people into an unknown path that seemed to contradict and undermine the authority of Scripture as they understood it. James 1, 14 and 5 says, Each one is tempted when they are drawn away by their desire, and that desire conceived sin. There's nothing wrong with desire. There's nothing wrong with ambition. There's nothing wrong with passion. Those are the elements that fuel and charge our mission. What is wrong is when we are drawn more to our desire. Our desire to uphold scripture becomes the goal rather than the truth and the freedom that scripture brings. 
in their zeal, in their desire to uphold the scriptures, Pharisees allowed themselves to devolve into duplicity and entrapment. The desire was not the sin. The desire to uphold scripture was not the sin, but seeing it as being the goal and looking for their own way of providing that goal and protecting that goal, that was their sin when they then looked to entrap Jesus. The next character is the adulterous woman. She was caught in the very act of adultery. For some, their sin can remain hidden. It's a sin in the heart. It's between God and themselves. For others, it's broadcast publicly. And for still others, they need to make a public confession because the damage and the harm that they did in their sin was impacting more people than just themselves. The question is, who is this woman? John is intentionally silent on her identity. And my thinking is not because John did not know who she was, but rather because she became part of the early church. And in keeping her name out of this narrative, out of this story, John is protecting her reputation. Tradition has it that she's Mary Magdalene, and I'm inclined to support that claim, which makes for a whole separate wonderful story that I'm going to tell you really briefly right now. Mary Magdalene, if this really is Mary Magdalene, she had seven demons. She was demon-possessed. Jesus set her free of demon possession. She was restored from her brokenness of prostitution and adultery. She later washes as Jesus' feet with her tears and wipes them with her hair and anoints them with perfume. Jesus sets her up example of the one who has been forgiven much and therefore loves much. And she is the first to speak to the resurrected Jesus and where she is given the task of being the first one to go and proclaim he is alive. Her story goes from being a demon-possessed prostitute to the declarer of the resurrection of Christ. When you see people caught in a sin, what do you see? Do you see the sinner? Or do you see the potential that that sinner could become? For now, whether it's Mary Magdalene or not, this adulterous woman is a sinner. And her sin has been exposed to the entire marketplace. The next character is the crowd. The crowd was in the middle of listening to teaching when the Pharisees came and rudely interrupted them. And they stood back and they listened. They knew that this conversation the Pharisees and Jesus and they were wanting to know how Jesus was going to respond. How do you respond when someone interrupts you? How do you respond when you've got a certain path that you want to go down and your, your, your plan, your day, and everything is working along that way and someone comes in and says, I'm going to come in and challenge you on something. Jesus responds to them. This becomes a teaching lesson for the crowd. What do we see when others, what do others see when we encounter and engage those who are sinning? What do others see when we are rudely interrupted? The storyline begins with Jesus' teaching 
He's going about his father's business, and he gets really interrupted. He responds to the interruption. He responds to the Pharisees by writing on the sand. He ignores them, which only irritates them more. And so they continue to press their question. And then he stands up and says, if any of you are without sin, throw the first stone. He doesn't, in a sense, directly answer the question that they have. But instead he turns it around on them. What strikes me is the way that he responded to them. If I was him, and oh, thank God I wasn't, but if I was him, I'm teaching and someone comes bashing through the door and rudely interrupts me, I would not have the grace to sort of say, well, I'll tell you, you know, I'm just going to write on the sand here. I would be more inclined to say, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed sepulchers. Those are terms that he uses to the Pharisees. There is a point, and there are times you need to do that, but Jesus recognized that this is not the time. What he recognized instead is he speaks to their hearts. He doesn't answer their direct question. He wants their hearts to convict them. He sees in their heart both the evil intent, but he also sees the desire to uphold Scripture. Rather than condemn the condemners, he allows their conscience to speak and do the work of conviction. And one by one, they walked away. He then responds to the guilty. This woman was, was guilty as sin. There was no denying this. And he says to her, he speaks the truth in love to her and offers her a choice. He says, where are those who condemn you? Now that is a question that is rather specific. It's referring to the Pharisees who had condemned her. But there was a deeper element to that question. Who condemns you? He's giving her a chance to say, I condemn myself. He's giving her a chance to say, Have mercy upon me, for I am a sinner. But she answers, No one. I am without. That her own heart is not convicting her of the very blatant, obvious sin that has been exposed to everyone. And she says, no one condemns me. Rather than correct her and point out the obvious, Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. He now steps into this and says, you said that no one condemns me. Wait a minute. I am the one without sin. I am the only one worthy to pick up that first stone and execute you in accordance with the law that I gave. Instead, he says, I don't condemn you. But then he speaks the truth. The I don't condemn you is love, but then he speaks the truth. I don't want you to justify your life because of the situation that you find yourself in. I don't want you to make excuses for what you're doing. I don't want you to look at your life and say, I have no other choice. I 
want you to leave your life of sin. He speaks the truth. He calls her lifestyle sin. He doesn't placate it. He doesn't whitewash it. He doesn't say it's just part of the evolutionary cycle and this is what you've evolved to. He doesn't say you were born this way and you have no choice. He says it is sin. He calls her to leave that life of sin. He calls her to repent. He gives her a choice even as he is speaking to her love and says, I don't condemn you. He also gives, you a, gives her a choice. Leave your life of sin. Intrinsic in that statement is the choice to, yes, I will leave it, or I love it too much and I'm not going to. Notice he did not speak forgiveness to her. He simply released her from the prison of her current guilt and caused, called her to a choice. Continue in sin, leave her sin. Now, let's step away from this story for a second because there is another sequel to this. Remember I said it's one story, it's only found in John, but there are other Gospels as well, and so we need to look at the rest of them. There is a sequel to this story. Right now, Jesus had left this woman with a choice to make. The sequel is found in Matthew 26, it's found in Mark 14, it's found in Luke 7, and it's also found in John 12. It's a different story, but there's a lot of similarities. There are some differences, such as location, but there's a lot of agreement on the similarities of it. Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house for dinner. The Pharisee is known as Simon the leper. John refers to the house as being the home of Lazarus. So it's Simon the leper or Lazarus. Those are some of the differences. The key is that this is a, a house that Jesus has invite, been invited to for dinner. A sinful woman, a prostitute, comes in and pours out, washes Jesus' feet with her tears, wipes them with her hair, and pours expensive perfume on his feet, anoints them. The Pharisee, in his thought, looks at this and goes, my goodness, if this guy was really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is, and he would not let this woman touch him. Jesus, knowing the Pharisee's thoughts, tells him a story. Simon, who loves more? The person forgiven lots or the person forgiven little? And Simon rightly answers and says, well, the person forgiven lots. Then Jesus points to the woman and says, she loves lots because she's been forgiven lots. I've come into your house and what love have you shown me? What have you been forgiven? You didn't wash my feet. You didn't anoint them. She has not stopped. She loves lots. Then in verse 48, remember I said this is the sequel to the other story. Then he speaks forgiveness to her. He says, Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We're now going to return back to the John story. Jesus' next response to the crowd at the very end. This verse is sometimes not included in the story of the adulterous woman. That story normally ends with the choice the woman has to leave. But I believe that this is where Jesus now says, 
take this interruption and I'm going to make it a teaching moment for those who I was teaching before. And he declares to them, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't walk in darkness. You won't walk in sin, but will walk in life, in light. He calls the crowd to see their own sin. Remember I said that some people's sins are private. Others, like the woman, her sins are exposed to the world. Blessed is the one whose sins are private. He calls the crowd, though, to look at their own sin and to step out of the darkness into his light. There is one more character in this story. The mystery man. The the woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Adultery is not a sin you commit alone. And the very same law that called for her death called for the man's death. The man escaped the punishment and the condemnation of his sins because of the evil intent of the Pharisees. If the Pharisees had really been wanting to uphold the scriptures, really been focused on righteousness more than entrapment, they would have brought both of them to Jesus. They let this guy escape. This guy must have felt lucky because he avoids the consequence of his sin. But I think he is the man to be most pitied in this story because avoiding the consequence of his sin, avoiding having to deal with his sin, means he missed out on the opportunity to see the light. He missed out on the opportunity for forgiveness. He continues to walk in his darkness. So which character do you identify with? Who are you? Are you the Pharisees? They claim to walk in light, claim to be holders of the truth. 1 John 1.8 says to you, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Perhaps you're the adulterous woman or the crowd. You recognize your sin because it's either been exposed or you know it in your own heart. First John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, if we leave our life of sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all righteousness. He will transform our behavior by the changing of our thinking. He will enable us to produce fruit in keeping with our repentance. Perhaps you're the mystery man, the one who avoids admitting their sin by claiming to be without sin, by calling sin sin, simply a lifestyle choice. To that, Jesus says in 1 John 1.10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. How do we do our mission? How do we handle people caught in sin? How do we free those imprisoned by their own sense of reality? How do we restore those who are broken? We speak the truth in love, seasoned with grace. 
I want to tell you two more stories. Both of them are real. One, some of you here recognize. The other, you won't. And the two stories are very similar. One involved a woman, the other involved a man. They were both active Christians, active in their churches, their respective churches. One stole. The man trespassed. They were afraid that God would not provide their needs, and so they looked to provide it themselves. And she stole, and he trespassed. They were guilty. For the woman, people called for her to be handed over to the police. But grace in the hearts and actions of others intervened, did not hand her over to the police. For the man, people called for him to be handed over to the police. And the reason he was handed over wasn't because there was no grace in that story. There was grace. But sometimes the most gracious thing we can do for people is have them be confronted with the reality and the responsibility and the consequences of their sin. The man had been warned multiple times. The woman, this was her first offense. The man had been discipled, had been coached, and he refused to yield to the advice. Continued, like the mystery man, to walk in his sin. The woman publicly confessed her sin. The man publicly confessed his when he pled guilty. The woman was restored on a path of restoration. The man had a probation, two years suspended sentence, probation, and he was also restored on a path of restoration. Both of them took ownership of their sin, and both were restored to their respective churches. Because they acknowledged their sin, they changed their thinking, and that changed their behavior, and they produced fruit in keeping with repentance. The woman will remain nameless to protect her reputation, and I charge those of you who recognize that story, or think you recognize that story, Keep her nameless. For she has been forgiven. She has stepped out of darkness. She has been restored. And she's actively engaged in the kingdom of God. The man, he stands before you with this message. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your thinking because of your evil behavior. But now you have been reconciled by his physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free free of accusation. What is our mission? It is to proclaim good news to the poor. 
is to restore the brokenhearted. It's to proclaim freedom and release to those in bondage. It is to be light, calling people out of darkness to leave their life of sin and to walk in the light of life. We live in a time and place where there is confusion and division. Objective, independent truth has been replaced with self-truth. We have placed ourselves as the God of our own lives. And this causes division within our community. To prove ourselves right by proving the other person wrong. Because we don't have an external objective standard to adjudicate between right and wrong. We have devolved into an atmosphere of confusion. What is right in their own eyes. We have no basis for punishment of wrong because wrong is relative. And it has devolved to strike at the very essence of our personhood when we now promote confusion over gender and sexuality. And we take pride. As a culture, we take pride in not knowing who we are. Into this time and this culture, in 2020, you have been placed. You have been sent out on a mission. <laughs> to proclaim good news to the poor. To restore the brokenhearted. To proclaim freedom and release to those in bondage. To be light calling people out of their darkness and confusion to leave their life of sin and to walk in the light of life. And we do this by exercising grace to not condemn them for their sin. Folks, the sinners out there, sin. That's their job description. That's their mission. They are sinners. They will sin. It is not our place to condemn them for doing what the darkness tells them to do. Rather, it is our place to shine the light of into their darkness so that, we can, so that they can see that and be called out. We come and, and shine a light like a lighthouse in the midst of a storm. A ship has no idea where it's going, but that light, that beacon says, in the midst of the darkness, here I am. Now in a ship, that lighthouse is the start of the harbor and they know to go to the right or to the left of that lighthouse, but it gives them a point, it gives them a bearing, it gives them a place of orientation. And they now know the truth and they're called out of their sin into their life into the life of light. Don Francisco wrote a song, the chorus of which I really love. I don't care where you've been sleeping. This is what we need to communicate to people that we come in contact with. This is the light 
that we have to shine to them. I don't care where you've been sleeping. I don't care who's made your bed. I already gave my life to set you free. That line can be read two different ways. I, Jesus, has already given your life to set you free. Or I, Dan, am pouring my life into yours to say, come out of the darkness. There's no sin you can imagine that is stronger than my love. In my story, I told you that the difference between the woman and I was that I had to bear the consequence of my sin. We both had to bear the consequence of of our sin. She had to bear it within the context of the people that she had sinned against. I had to bear it in the context of the people that I had sinned against. And because I had not yielded correction, grace said we have to take it to the bigger step and you have to stand in front of the public court. Sometimes we need to recognize that sin carries with it consequences that we cannot avoid. Perhaps it's an unwanted pregnancy. The sin is forgiven, but the consequence you can't avoid. And you don't wash over that sin or that consequence by committing another sin. Jesus says, I don't care where you've been sleeping. I don't care who's made your bed. I already gave my life to set you free. There is no sin you can imagine that is stronger than my love. And it's all yours if you'll return to me. You, me, we are the light of the world. Don't walk in darkness. Leave your sin. Walk in the light of Christ and let your light so shine before others that they will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven.